Welcome to the RSP Cast. I'm Matt Walden with the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. Today's episode is a solo cast on the 2023 quarterback class. A strong group of prospects worth of your attention as an NFL fan, Dynasty GM, and in a few cases as a fantasy GM in redraft and best ball formats. Now I'm going to discuss one or two prevailing thoughts I have about the 14 quarterbacks that will be featured in the 2023 Rookie Scouting Port Portfolio pre-draft publication, which is available for pre-order at mattwaldman.com for April 1 download. Now, the only quarterback from the combine that I didn't study yet is Malik Bennett from Louisville. He'll probably be studied for the post-draft. If I have time before I put this book together for April 1 publication, maybe I'll do the scouting of Bennett before... Um, and include him in the pre-draft publication. But right now, it's probably 80-20 likely that he'll be strictly for the post-draft. Anyway, we're going to talk about those 14 quarterbacks in a moment. But if you haven't purchased the RSP in the past, it's a PDF draft guide covering at least 150 players at the offensive skill positions, a quarterback, running back, wide receiver, and tight end. And it's been available for download every April 1st since 2006. Quarterback chapter has been sent off to my team of editors. Um, So I'm on pace right now to make that 18 years in a row. And for over a decade, I've been delivering a post-draft guide one week after the NFL draft that's included in that subscription price of $21.95. This is how I make my living. So if you enjoy the podcasts that I'm on, my YouTube channel, Twitter, my TikTok content, any videos that I do for free, you know, the, 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 the site that I provide analysis with, all of that work is just simply me sharing a minuscule amount of the background research that I do every day that goes into this April 1st publication and then ultimately the post-draft publication. I go deep with the RSP and it helps you go deep with your knowledge so that you can go deep on your league mates. So look, you know, I was in sales a long time ago and like I said, the last time I did one of these shows, you know, what I'm sharing is low on frills and huge on substance. That was a conscious decision when I started thinking about making a a a draft guide that I wanted to do a draft guide new readers are always pleasantly shocked with what they get and I'll share more detail about the RSP later in this podcast but this a let's call this the a through w show on quarterbacks this is going to be like my previous solo podcast b through z on running backs and tight ends I'm going to be sharing the one two things on quarterbacks if I'm notable and in alphabetical order, at least beginning with their first name, with a couple of exceptions here. These thoughts will fall into the categories of praise, criticism, lingering questions, or or broader thoughts about the position. Now, these are far from complete scouting reports. Obviously, if you want the full deal, again, mattwaldman.com, $21.95, and it'll get you all of the scouting reports. And if you're like most who give me feedback about the price, you'll feel like you're underpaying. In fact, one of my editors every year posts little notes throughout the chapter, basically telling me that I need to charge more. He's been doing it for the past, oh, I don't know, four or five years now. 
So yeah, I'm selling you here, but that's the truth. So this 2023 quarterback class, it's a, a strong one. Strong enough that if you're a fantasy GM, I'd recommend investing in the top three options at the position, considering that the hit rate for first-round quarterbacks is almost a coin flip. That's a healthy endorsement coming from me, especially if you know my recent stance on quarterbacks in for fantasy football, for dynasty leagues. You know, I tend to recommend to GMs and dynasty leagues to invest in receivers and running backs, build a surplus of talent, and then leverage that surplus for a quarterback. And while I still think that that can be a wise track this year, I not only think it's worthwhile to consider one of these three quarterbacks I'll discuss, um, you know, more in detail in that 2023 RSPB draft, not only think it's worthwhile to consider one of these three quarterbacks in the first round, but if you're tearing down your team to the studs and rebuilding, or you're in a startup dynasty league, or your team is in that no man's land where you're too good for a top three pick and you don't want to overpay for it, but you're not good enough to be a playoff contender and you need help on your team. I've found that stockpiling quarterback talent can be a viable strategy either getting, you know, and in this draft, you might be able to get two of my top three options at the position in the opening two rounds, or maybe be able to get one. And then next year, I think there's going to, it's going to be a pretty good class as well. You might be able to get another strong option. If you don't get over the hump in 2023, you might be able to wind up with two really good quarterbacks heading into 2024, 2025, and be able to, to leverage one of those for a position of need. So before we get into this class, it should be stated every year that I do this, that when considering the physical, technical, conceptual, intuitive, and emotional facets of the position, quarterback is the most demanding role on a playing field in sport. Evaluating the position is also difficult. And while I've had my share of misses, when I think of the two that stand out the most, it would be in recent years, it'd be Dak Prescott and Justin Herbert. Even though a lot of my peers, when I bring up Dak Prescott, they say everybody missed on Dak Prescott. So you really don't want to call that a miss because, you know, they give a, a number of different reasons. And I get that. Um, but I, I, I would say... I've written in fair enough detail that Dak Prescott helped exploit where my process had grown to a point where I needed to make some changes and I needed to continue to grow past the, the, the limits of my process. And he, his, his, um, work helped me discover that Justin Herbert, I'm, I'm going to wait another year or two before I revisit his Oregon tape um, in that regard. I definitely saw the upside, but I had some suspicions that didn't really quite work out with him. Or, um, now, you know, in terms of those guys, I have been known for taking stands that were ahead of the curve. Russell Wilson, Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, and then 
Also, even with less regarded prospects like Brock Purdy, Skylar Thompson, and I've raised significant doubts about players that people were all in on or very high on, like Mitchell Trubisky, Baker Mayfield, Drew Locke, Zach Wilson. Now, I'm sharing these hits and misses not to brag or to sell, but to set up some points about quarterback evaluation that's important for scouting any class, especially one of the most important players in this class. And these three points are this. One, that box score stats aren't always contextually sound data. Two, raw is a vague term that can mean many things and lead you down the wrong path. So box score, going back, box score stats aren't always contextually sound data. Raw is a vague term that can mean too many things and lead you down the wrong path. Confidence is a trackable trait with quarterbacking. So let's begin with point number one, that box score stats aren't always contextually sound data. Now, I originally brought this up when Baker Mayfield was a prospect and during his senior bowl. And I got pushback from the media analytics community. They loved Mayfield for his completion percentage. And I had been noting that accuracy is a deceptive category because completion percentage fails to show the following things. It doesn't show how precise the pass placement is relative to the route break and the position of coverage. It doesn't show whether the receiver was responsible for a bad outcome despite a good decision and good execution from the quarterback. So, you know, the receiver could fail to reward the quarterback for what should have been extra percentage points in completion percentage, that we're never going to see that. And it fails to show whether the quarterback executed the decision with the appropriate speed of confidence. Now, more on speed of confidence in a few minutes here. But that's a very important thing because speed of confidence doesn't have to be as fast in the college game as it usually does in the pro game. Now, Mayfield had a high completion percentage, but his placement often failed to be pinpoint by pro standards, which he got away with because, again, the way most college offenses had to play the Oklahoma, or the way most college defenses had to play the Oklahoma offense, Mayfield got away with it. And then Mayfield was also late too often with delivering targets that should have been completed if he processed the game with the decisive confidence of an NFL starter. What would happen is that he might complete some passes in the red zone or near the red or in, in against tight coverage that wasn't tight by NFL standards where he was late to finally throw the ball after he had seen the or an, or could have anticipated the receiver breaking open and got the ball there earlier and he got away with it against most teams but then when he had to face say maybe a university of georgia team with some pro caliber athletes at cornerback he wasn't getting away with it or facing defenders playing tight man-to-man coverage that he didn't always see because of the the defenses that mostly played Oklahoma opted for a different type of coverage. So 
how do you see these things that accuracy percentage or completion percentage doesn't show you well for me i chart games and most scouts well i don't know if most scouts chart games but a lot of scouts chart games and the rsp has a charting methodology and what i love about charting quarterbacks is that it contextualizes the degree of accuracy that completion percentage doesn't come close to doing so for every game i chart I categorize every throw based on situation, platform, target distance, target zone, accuracy type, and appropriate velocity. These are things that I define in writing. They aren't just things in my head that I'm doing. I've written, I'm writing this stuff down so that I can follow it strictly, so that I can try to reduce the amount of subjectivity in what it is that I track. So. The things that I'm looking at include scripted and unscripted situations, throwing the ball on and off platform, throwing from a stance and on the move, passes delivered to the same side of the field or the opposite hash, the presence and absence of pressure, targets against man and zone coverage in terms of at the best that I can do to discern the between the two. And combinations of these criteria are matched with the zones and distance and ranges of the field so i'm looking at for instance whether the player is throwing on platform no pressure to say the short side the, the short range of the field because i divide distances in increments so for instance short zones are zero to 14 yards from the pitch point that the quarterback makes so from the point that where he's making the throw that's where i start measuring the distance so i do short intermediate vertical and deep and they're in 14 yard increments deep is distances basically greater than 43 yards or 43 yards and greater then the zones i look at are are basically short intermediate and vertical but divided by the sidelines the flats and the middle of the field so the sidelines to me are the numbers to the boundary the flat region is from the numbers to the hash and the middle of the field is between the hashes and so you can see that there's a ton of combinations of things that i'm looking at and tracking on a spreadsheet um, and that helps give me an idea of you know percentage threat you know basically of where quarterbacks are throwing the ball what their offenses are asking them to do how successful they are in these varieties of situations and what i do is i i have all these categories um paired up with percentage thresholds to grade accuracy in the rsp that come from next gen stats for most of the criteria that i that i mentioned so i'm and also grading accuracy in two ways pinpoint accuracy that reaches a receiver exactly where the target should arrive based on the route, the receiver's position on the field, his primary coverage, and the secondary coverage of the defense. I'll take into account a reasonable percentage of general accuracy as well, which is simply just getting the ball within catchable range um, for the receiver. Now, a quarterback doesn't have to display pinpoint accuracy with every attempt at his top range to earn a spot in 
a certain tier. At the same time, there should be enough throws that I've tracked that illustrate the effort he makes to be pinpoint is, is something that he can replicate as he devotes extra work to his game. Now, while I'm using specific percentage thresholds for these accuracy grades, all charting data has a small sample size. You know, regardless of whether I'm using nine games or six games or four games or somebody else is using every game, all charting data and all like accuracy data that you can get on football players has a, is naturally a small sample size. Regardless of what anyone tries to tell you in the public sphere, what's more important is to contextualize the data as much as possible, which is what I'm doing. And it means that the use of this charting data to create thresholds still is a work in progress. And when I see fit to use additional context to grade a, a player a tier higher or lower, I'll do so. Um, but it's a, it's a very small tweak at best. Um, and very rarely would I do that. So, you know, when comparing the use of these thresholds in the way that I used to evaluate accuracy in the past, the differences aren't massive in most cases. But I have found that the data is particularly useful in clarifying which tier where I place performances. So a player like Dak Prescott, who had multiple accuracy grades on the cusp between two tiers, I would it would have made a discernible difference to his grade and so this is this contextually based way of of looking at accuracy to me is definitely more valuable than box score accuracy and a good example of that was the the times where baker mayfield and lamar jackson were um prospects Mayfield and Jackson were overvalued and undervalued respectively based on the box score accuracy. In contrast to my lower grade of Mayfield than most, Jackson was a player I had a higher grade than most and was more accurate than his box score data would have led you to believe because of the number of drop passes from his receiving court. And, and people who were looking at the box score stats were questioning his viability as a quarterback when if they could see charting on a regular basis would have known that the question of his positional viability w was ridiculous and this analysis has given me the confidence to stand firm with insights that have gone against the grain but proved out over time you can include you know drew Locke and zach wilson as recent examples rooted in this charting methodology now I'm shared that background with you because I think we're going to see another Mayfield Jackson dynamic with two projected first round prospects in this class. Anthony Richardson is seen as a raw athlete, whereas Will Levis has been seen as a first round lock with pro ready skills. Now, based on my charting and how I define my evaluation criteria, I think big draft has these players wrong and have had them wrong for months. I think Levis is the raw athlete and Richardson is far more pro-ready than credited. And this leads to my second point that raw is a vague term that can mean too many things and lead you down the wrong path. So, you know, synonymous words don't always mean exactly the same thing. It can be similar, 
but have important differences and nuance. So, you know, it's like, you know, paint colors. You know, you, you can look at, you know, the family of blue and, you know, navy blue is different than sky blue. It's vastly different when you really, you know, look at the nuance of it. So let's look at it this way, okay? If we're defining raw as inexperienced, perhaps in the same way that, you know, Netflix's show Queen's Gambit, the, the character Beth Harmon, the, the chess player, was inexperienced playing tournaments, then the type of awareness, that type of rawness that she had still had a shit ton of advanced skills, but she just lacked performance experience on the biggest stages. However, if you're defining raw as technically and conceptually unskilled, like say, you know, Malik Willis last year, then you're talking about something very different. So to begin with A on our quarterback list, Anthony Richardson is raw if we're discussing his experience. But his rawness is not synonymous with Malik Willis. In fact, Richardson does have a shit ton of advanced skills that are difficult to teach top quarterback prospects if they haven't learned these skills to this point of being a college player ready to go pro. And it's even more difficult to integrate them on one play, you know, integrate all the things that Richardson does well on one play to generate a productive solution. So that's kind of vague, abstract stuff. So I want you to think of it this way. Let's say Anthony Richardson's quarterbacking was like him learning the Vietnamese language and you sent him to live in Ho Chi Minh City last year compared to other prospects in this class who've been living there for two to four years. Okay, They're all, They've all learned Vietnamese, but the, the other prospects have been have learned it and they've been living now they've been living abroad for two to four years in Vietnam and you just sent Anthony Richardson out there last year okay if Richards if this was what Richardson's quarterbacking was like on film then you and you're going to apply it to this situation you would see that Richardson would have far more moments or maybe he got lost in Vietnam, he was late to appointments, maybe he even got fooled by a con artist on the street or a beggar because he didn't have the familiarity with common schemes designed to exploit him and he might not have learned the nuances of Vietnamese culture, okay? Whereas the other quarterbacks may have had more experiences, known what to look for, and knew how to avoid some of these things. However, if Anthony Richardson's quarterbacking was like him learning the Vietnamese language and he was sent to live in Ho Chi Minh City just last year, it's also true that if you compared him to the other prospects in this class that have lived there for two to four years, that Richardson would have proven to be an excellent conversationalist who could talk and listen to the language spoken at the rate of speed that natives speak it and he could even understand it and speak at that speed while he's multitasking during these conversations. He could even pick up and convey wit, sarcasm, and emotion into his responses. And, and meanwhile, his peers who'd been there longer 
maybe knew more about Vietnam and the culture from living there and what to watch out for, but they were still talking slower. They still needed others to talk slow or repeat the same thing several times, and they didn't pick up on or convey emotion as well as Richardson did. To me, that's the accurate way of describing Richardson's rawness as a quarterback. Now, he's going to have some dramatic highs and lows early on in his career, but his definition or version or embodiment of raw is completely different when comparing it to the what Malik Willis's version of being raw is. Okay, so yeah, I mean, think about that. It's like, you know, there are people who, you know, to me, the language part is a perfect is a perfect example of that because, you know, you can learn the customs and the culture and be more aware of, you know, the, the little tricks that go on or how people are. But it's a different story to be able to have absorbed the language fast enough to be able to to to, to really speak it and listen to it in a way that allows you to connect and make better and easier connections and to be convincing and appealing to people you know in the same way that you have to be you have to manipulate defense defenses in the same way that you have to negotiate um you know situations at a high rate of speed Richardson does a lot of that. So this leads to our final point. Confidence is a vital and trackable trait in quarterbacking. And, you know, most people think of confidence as like a, an intangible. And, it, and, I, and I get it. it. It is in the way that most people present it. But if I could pinpoint an area where a lot of teams miss with their evaluation of quarterbacks, it's undervaluing a passer's confidence. Um, and if you can define the term as confidence to close the gap between identification of favorable coverage to acting on that favorable coverage, you actually have something to roll with with your charting or your evaluation to, to track how many times or what's, what situation how many times a player is successful um, basically transitioning from identification to action? How many times are successful transitioning from identification to action? And in what situations they're successful or unsuccessful doing it? You can track that. And when you do that, now you're getting really contextualized data that leads to insights that you, you find in the rookie scouting portfolio on quarterbacks over the past several years. Now, the whiteboard and recall of plays and coverages are what you often see when you're hearing people talk about identification. You'll hear teams annually praise top prospects for their identification in these settings, and it often will translate to the field. Unfortunately, even if it translates to the field, None of that identification is any good on the field if the confidence to act at the immediate point of recognition isn't there. Now, Alex Smith was a great example of this. He could whiteboard all day. He was a, you know, people would talk about how, 
you know, how smart he was, what his, his memory was like. He had great retention. But, and while he could remember all the schemes and the minutia of the scheme and the play, um, you know, the game plan and talk about coverages to death and all of these things, when it came time to getting on the field and executing, he often had to wait an extra two or three beats or steps or hitches or seconds between what he saw as open or about to break open and actually saying, okay, I'm going to commit to throwing that. And so really wait, that waiting for further confirmation of what's immediately seen rather than acting on what's immediately seen immediately, you know, right away, these, this waiting for confirmation plagues a lot of early round passers who teams annually praise for talking about the game like coaches when they meet with them before the draft. Now, if we, you know, I said I go A through W, let's skip to W on our list. Because to me, when we talk about this point of confidence to action, Will Levis lacks this confidence to close the gap between identification and action way too often for sustainable success in the NFL at this point in time of his career. It doesn't mean he won't get there, but it's a common theme I've seen with top prospects who usually wash out. So it's important to note that. So now let's get back to the rest of my thoughts on these quarterbacks going to A through, well, T in this case, since we already got one of our A's in Anthony Richardson, one of our W's in Will Lewis, Levis. So Aiden O'Connell out of Purdue. I love his aggressive confidence with tight window targets, but at the same time, there's a bit of burn the boats mentality with his game. I mean, he, he's got to learn to throw the ball away because he is not very mobile. His former walk-on, he's, he's been a good Big Ten quarterback, but he's he has to make sure that he can temper that ability to attack downfield in tight coverage in the middle of the field even too that he has to know when to throw the ball away and part of that is that he he gets kind of goal focused in that pocket and doesn't sense when that pressure is too close for him to uh, continue trying to look for a place to throw the ball Bryce Young listen he's Kyler Murray small but he's not Kyler Murray fast at the same time, I think if Kyler Murray could be honest with himself, he would wish all day long that he had Bryce Young's pocket management. Murray may move twice as fast as Young, but he's also prone to wasting twice as much time and space, compromising his pocket and inviting pressure unnecessarily due to all that wasted movement, and as a result, forcing receivers to reroute due to his inefficient maneuvers. Young may not be as quick or as fast, but he's savvier with his movement and he rarely does any of these things that Murray does that can basically wreck um, a passing play if he doesn't play ground his way into a huge play. And he often do, he does often enough that it can make a difference, but it can be a headache 
for his offense. Now, comparisons are problematic. You know, they're entertaining, but they're problematic. I like using multi-dimensional comparisons based on a player's playing style, his build, his athletic ability, and to some degree, where I think his talent is. In the case of Bryce Young, if I could create a comparison spectrum that you could visualize in multiple dimensions, it would be that of a four-legged table. The two legs on the right side are players like Joe Montana and Drew Brees in terms of size. Smaller athletes with good enough but not notable physical traits for the position. Okay, so not saying there's ten, he, Bryce Young's the next Joe Montana or Drew Brees. Not saying that. Could it happen? You know, it's possible. We'll put it that way. But, you know, what I'm trying to impart is that Bryce Young, Joe Montana, Drew Brees are smaller athletes, good enough, but not notable physical traits for the position, but they possess excellent field position, field vision, anticipation, leverage reading, pocket feel, and placement. They're savvy movers in the scope of what it means to be a quarterback, and they see the field well. Now, the two legs on the other side, to me, are players like Kyler Murray and Seneca Wallace. Undersized, athletic is all a get-out. They can threaten a defense with their legs, but they usually use their legs to buy time behind the line while looking to throw a little more playground, okay? So sitting at the top of the table, you know, the tabletop supported by the influence of these four legs are two players and they kind of are side by side with each other. And that's Bryce Young and Russell Wilson. And Wilson at his best could can buy time dynamically, but he also has enough pocket efficiency, accuracy, anticipation, and field th reading to be more than a playground heavy type of quarterback. I think Tyler Kyler Murray's a little more playground than what maybe coaches would like, but they can live with it because he is a he has been a good player. Whereas, you know, Montana and Breeze were athletic enough to buy time and maybe less playground, more structure oriented um, situations. Um but they also, you know, and uh, diagnosed situations quickly and found quick solutions in a very efficient way. And I think that, you know, I'm not saying that Russell Wilson is the, the best of Montana and Breeze and the best of Murray and Seneca Wallace. I'm just saying that if you took their skills, all of those players' skills, and you combine them into one player in terms of to varying degrees of whatever skills that player expresses them, you would see those elements in his game. Okay. So, you know, that's what I see with is Bryce Young is that he can buy time dynamically, but he also has efficiency as a player with accuracy, anticipation, and field reading that I think he'll thrive in the NFL despite his size. Now, C.J. Stroud, when I think of Stroud, I'm reminded of the dangers of logo scouting. Now, this is currently what I would maybe classify it best as a low-key plague of 
Ohio State quarterbacks in the public sphere right now. And we could go kind of far back to, say, Troy Smith, who was an excellent college quarterback, but a journeyman pro at best. Terrell Pryor, who earned a ton of unwarranted buzz due to his physical skills and ultimately became a promising wide receiver before injuries killed his career. He was a guy that I wrote about saying the beer goggles effect, saying that you know teams would get desperate to for the potential franchise guy, and if if they saw someone that looked remotely like it, they would see something that really wasn't in the player. You know, I think Zach Wilson was a good example of that. That they had beer goggles for him. Okay, but Terrell Pryor was my first beer goggles player um, that I taught used that term for. Cardell Jones. He was he has a label of a one year wonder at Ohio State. Um, you know, was on the end of the Chargers depth chart for years. Um, you know, certainly had some skills, but really didn't uh, take it to that next level. And then Dwayne Haskins, who failed to capture a long-term starting role with his first team um, and unfortunately died just as he was beginning to figure things out behind the scenes with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, Ohio State has a reputation for fielding excellent prospects at just about every position other than quarterback. Over the long haul, I would say that's that would be um, an accurate statement. Now, because of the outcomes for Jones, Pryor, Smith, and Haskins as pros, I think the Buckeyes get labeled as a team that prefers system quarterbacks um, or top-end athletes with questionable skills as field generals when considering them for the NFL level. And when you throw in the fact that Joe Burrow had to transfer to become a star is additional fuel for this perception. It's a more conspiracy theory rooted in some, you know, rooted in some small truths that really can't cover the entire, support the entire theory. But it's something that people perceive. Now, as I said, the RSP system for scouting players is designed to focus as much on possible, as much as possible, on what the individual can do to create plays for himself or his teammates. It means box score data matters a lot less than techniques, concepts, and traits that you can define in terms of what they are and how someone either does or doesn't execute them, as well as how well they execute them. And you can use these things that put players and teammates into positions to make positive plays. You know, to me, that that's what scouting comes down to is can you identify how, where, and when, or if players can do the work to put themselves and their teammates in the positions to make positive plays. They don't have to make the positive plays. They just have to set up, be in a position to make them based on what they did. One step leads to the other type of thing. Now, Stroud has, to me, a lot of these things that can put teammates in positive positions to make plays. And I think he's one of the safest options in this draft class. In fact, I think he is the safest option in this draft class. Um, 
but before you think is it far and the way safest I don't think it's far and away the safest in fact I would say the player that people think might be one of the riskiest is pretty darn safe um, so moving on Clayton Toon if Gardner Minshew <laughs> were more athletic and less refined as a decision maker and technician he'd probably be tuned tuned to me is like Minshew's stunt double in the same way that I I joke that the bedhead Sam Howell on a gif on Twitter is Dwayne McFarlane's stunt double because they both have a similar facial structure and thick hair okay tune is Toon is very entertaining to watch when he moves outside the pocket, especially moving to his left. Just keep that in mind. Dorian Thompson Robinson. Now, his release footwork's problematic. He has to become more aware of coverage adjacent to his targets that can get into position to peel off their assignments and cut off the passing lane. But with that said, Thompson Robinson is the player on my board probably with the lowest grade who I still think can have a lasting career and make significant strides as a pro. He's a guy I'm, I, I would, he's probably one of the last of the guys that I would urge you to monitor closely. All right, Her, Herndon Hooker out of Tennessee. He's athletic. He executed well at both Virginia Tech and Tennessee in their offenses. He's better at reading leverage on the same depth as the receiver than he is when the depth is playing over the top. Um, he tends to misread these situations and throw into the defender's position when the defender is playing over the top. Hooker's also consistently one or two beats with delivering vertical shots against man-to-man -man coverage based on where the receiver demonstrates favorable leverage. So my point about um, you know, identification to action. Hooker is a good example of someone that lacks some of that. Now, you'll see that on tape where his late throws allow defensive backs to recover and cornerbacks playing man-to-man -man or safety playing in the middle of the field, they can, they can wreak havoc on some of his throws. Now, when he's on time against man coverage, you know, he delivers the ball with, with good accuracy um, and he can beat cornerbacks and safeties with the throw as far as 55 yards from the pitch point. And he's on time more frequently when he's considering a deep shot against zone. Um, but when you look at his game, this offense has a lot of wide splits. It makes reads more straightforward than what he'll experience in, in some NFL systems. And I just have doubts about his transition if the fit isn't super strong. And, and after all, he's got a knee injury from November and you know with he's going to be I think he's going to be almost 27 before that knee is likely to be not only 100% but him to be psychologically confident in the knee might take a couple years and by that time he'll be 27 all right Jake Hayner so let's just say if Brock Purdy had a little brother with a slightly better arm, similar pocket presence, and bold but wiser decision-making when you compare them at the same stages of their college careers, 
I think Hayner would be that guy. Now, he won't remotely earn a situation like Purdy, but in a few years, I think you're going to be more familiar with this game as either a compelling backup or a journeyman starter. All right, now no more teasing. The Rookie Scouting Portfolio Pre-Draft Pro's Draft Publication is the goods, and for $21.95, you're going to get the most comprehensive look at skill positions of quarterback, running back, wide receiver, and tight end that's available to the general public. You get what you get for download on April 1st, the PDF. It's fully bookmarked. It contains information that my subscribers have learned is evergreen and even more valuable than post-draft information that is usually in the highest demand by the newest subscribers. Rankings and you're going to get things like rankings and cheat sheet and pros formats. You're going to get detailed profiles breaking down all the criteria I use to scout each position. I guide you through my defined and weighted criteria that's all available in the glossary or in some cases as I've done some new things I'm still working on that but you get you're going to see uh, um, you know well-defined weighted criteria and you're going to get an entertaining understanding of my evaluation process and how the pieces make the whole of each scouting report and you even see analysis as or excuse me, analysis with recent draft trends, trends at each position, and what I think is changing with how the league assesses the positions. You get stylistic comparisons that I think are reasonable and detailed, um, even if it's just you know how I you you know place the names next to each other. You get again, I'm 150 prospects profiled pre-draft at minimum. Rankings from my past three years of classes updated multiple times during the season through a newsletter. The post-draft guide that's also part of the service is available no later than a week after the draft, and it delivers great fantasy analysis rooted in football scouting that I did for the pre-draft publication. You get ADP tracking from multiple leagues, updated rankings and tiered cheat sheets with sweet spot values. That's what I call it, which is the value between my valuation of the player and the post-draft ADP. So, for instance, when I was super high on Nick Chubb, and Patrick Mahomes. I knew that they weren't going until the middle to the end of the second round in a lot of drafts. So instead of telling them to take those guys in the first round, I showed them where they could wait to use their first round pick on a, on a compelling talent and then still being able to get Mahomes or Chubb and really thrive. Okay, so you also get analysis on um, fit, team fit, depth chart analysis, and a monthly newsletter again with scouting reports and analysis of future prospects. Just go to mattwaldman.com. So let's wrap up. Let's see what the last four or five players on our list. Continuing with Jaron Hall. I think he's a capable play action passer with a journeyman starter's future. And there's about five to six players in this class that have the dimensions and throwing velocities of players in that range of Dalton, Breeze, and Wilson, or Minshew. And most of these guys probably won't earn anything earlier than a day three draft selection, but I think all of them have potential to outplay their valuation. In fact, I think there's eight players in this draft for quarterbacks in this draft who have a higher draft grade from the RSP than you know some of my fourth fifth or sixth ranked um, players from the past two years at the position 
that includes guys like Davis Mills and Zach Wilson. Again, you know, there's probably five to six players in that mid-tier alone who who would fit that. So Jaron Hall is one of those guys. I think he could be, you know, he's not someone that I think you're going to be drafting in most leagues, but he's someone to, to, to monitor. Max Duggan is another example of that. You know, Quinton Johnson may turn into a primary NFL starter, but he's going to have to do more than attack targets with overhand position and workouts where he's uncovered. Although most will say, you know, Johnson made Duggan look good with with Johnson's flaws at the catch point where, you know, when he's not catching passes against open space, I think Duggan's the one who made Johnson look good. Duggan has that Jeff Blake ability to put air under targets and deliver opposite hash with better accuracy than any quarterback in this class. That's how good his opposite hash throws are. Um, Does that make him a viable starter? No. He's got work to do, especially his mechanics. Um, With his lower leg, he's kind of got a baseball um, style with his lower body when he throws, and there can be some issues with that, with the ball sailing. Now, Stetson Bennett also fits within that realm of those five to six players with those Breeze, Wilson, Dalton, Minshew dimensions. Now, his arm strength and quickness have been underrated parts of his game until the combine. You know, and then he start people started to take notice that, oh, this guy has an NFL arm. Oh, he's as quick as some of the slot receivers, or if most of the he's quick or quicker than most of the receivers that ran at the combine. Now, if well I'll say this. If Bennett didn't have some flaws with reading zone coverage, he would have been in the top tier on my board. And he might have threatened my number three quarterback um, for that third spot. Um, I was surprised about that. I was surprised about his potential for delivering athletic and creative solutions on film. Um, Stetson Bennett, I you know, I make it a little punished for the for the public intoxication arrest that he had in Dallas, um, but I don't think it's going to cost him getting drafted you know I won't be you know I'm, I'm not I'll look at it this way I think he's likely a day three guy but he might have been an early day three guy if not for the arrest I don't think it's going to completely derail his draft value but he'll take maybe another round hit hit for it and we finish with two more players here Tanner McKee out of Stanford big Strong, strong, good arm. But um, I'm concerned that his offensive line at Stanford really limited our ability to determine the full scope of that accuracy and arm talent. And I wonder if his experiences dealing with so much pressure will alter his reactions to pressure long term. That's the concern with him. Now, Tyson Bajan out of Shepherd, if you know where Shepherd is, at Shepherd College is. A, I believe in West Virginia. They play teams like Colorado School, the Mines, and Southern Connecticut State. Um, and that means that, you know, he's facing player defenders who are generally 
smaller in the and they're division two players they're generally smaller not quite as athletic um, there's not a lot of players who are as athletic as and skilled as a guy like Bajent on the field you know there's usually one to you know maybe one to two players on each team who might threaten to have those types of skills who are in the starting lineup so for me Bajent's ideal development play would probably be intermittent playing time to learn from mistakes and recalibrate his boundaries as a decision maker now playing at a higher level of football now it's doubtful this is going to happen that way I mean we don't see intermittent playing time very often but he is a compelling enough prospect to earn a backup role within a year or two or three and I think that could lead to intermittent playing time um, but even without it I think Bajan has the tools to develop into an NFL quarterback and note and it makes him worth monitoring during the next few years well here we are almost four o'clock in the morning here I was a little um, I don't know I guess a, a little amped after finishing the RSP chapter on quarterbacks now I've got to decide which chapter I'm going to do next um, and that and get started on it right away tomorrow after I get a little bit of shut eye but I hope you enjoyed this episode I have wide receivers left to do for the podcast that will probably be in a couple of weeks maybe three weeks um, depending on you know what order I, fi I start finishing these RSP chapters again you can go to mattwaldman.com to get the RSP and remember um, you know some of the I designate proceeds up to five thousand dollars to donate to darkness to light d to l.org you can find out more about them they protect children um, from sexual abuse through training adults on how to recognize grooming behaviors um, from you know predators understand dynamics where sexual abuse most often occurs and know how to you know be there for children when a child does make a complaint so that um, the damage isn't compounded so um, great organization the RSP has raised you know I believe over $55,000 I want to say 60 but I think it'll be 60 this year if all things go as expected but um, over $55,000 since 2012 I think again it's late proud of the work I don't remember the details of the PR stuff that I usually tell at this point uh, my mind's a little blown just talking quarterbacks but it's a great organization um, you know I, I'm a big believer in trying to provide resources that can help um, children avoid or be able to at least have a healthy situation to cope with this kind of um, problem because it's a problem in this country it's a problem all over the world and you know you can usually tell that because when I mention this cause usually what happens is that it's crickets on social media you know I, I'll mention darkness to light I mentioned that I donate to um, prevent sexual abuse of children and you get crickets mostly from the audience from that kind of thing and it's not because they don't care it's not because they don't pay attention it's because more people get sexually abused than what's reported 
and it's a fairly high report rate that these experiences have happened and it's a taboo and sensitive topic so it's understandable that there are crickets but a month but those crickets that do chirp um are very thankful that um you know we have organizations like darkness to light and they're thankful that the rsp has been supported by folks like you to be able to uh to to donate so keep that in mind you know if you if you're enjoying this draft season and i don't see how you couldn't with just the caliber prospects that are going that are, that are going into the nfl this year um you know know that this is a little extra that can be helpful um in that regard so thanks again enjoy your week see you later